Hello and welcome to episode 74 of the In Squash podcast. Uh, I'm your host Jerry Gibson and today uh, Rod Gilmore comes on, uh, lead squash writer, lead writer for the uh, Squash Player magazine. He also writes for the Telegraph. Uh, he has uh, several books uh, authored and co-authored, uh, three on squash including uh, the James Willstrip uh, Shot and Ghost, uh, which he co-authored with James, uh, Jahangir Khan 555, uh, which uh, chronicles the 555 game win streak of Jahangir Khan's, and also another called uh, Trading Secrets. Uh, Rod and I talk uh, at length about the, the failed Olympic bid. He has, uh, he's written about that already in the Telegraph, I believe in, uh, online, and um, he has plenty to say about what went wrong there and uh, what, uh, what should be done uh, going forward. Also, he comments on Nick uh, Matthews' suggestion of uh, taking legal action, which he believes is, uh, you know, there, there's something in that. So um, we talk a bit about that. We also look, uh, look at uh, today's game, his views on today's game, uh, quite a bit about James Wilstrup. Of course, he's uh, co-authored a book with James, so he knows James quite well. And uh, we talk about, uh, about what a great career he's had and seemingly playing some very good squash as, as, uh, as we saw at the British Nationals, him win, uh, James winning uh, the British Nationals this year and looking, uh, looking very good in doing so. And uh, much, much more. So I know you're going to enjoy this one. Episode 74 with Rod Gilmore. The Olympics, and he's an Olympic sports journalist, lead writer for the uh, for Squash Player uh, magazine, and he's uh, recently written an interesting uh, piece in the Telegraph, uh, following up uh, on Nick Matthews' suggestion of taking legal action against the IOC. Um, and he's also the author of several books, including three on three or four on squash. Um, Jahangir Khan, 555, Trading Secrets, and Shot and a Ghost. Rod Gilmore is my guest. Rod, great to have you on. Thanks, Jerry. Good to speak. Yeah. Now, um, let's get right to it here. Uh, about a, a couple of weeks ago, I guess the dust is obviously settled now, but uh, in the heat of the moment, uh, uh, Nick Matthew came up with the uh, suggestion that uh, you know, in London 2012, uh, we should have uh, been included in those Olympics. And uh, since then, we've uh, basically done everything the IOC wants us to do in terms of uh, being part of the Olympic Games. But uh, we keep on uh, missing uh, missing the, the bid. And his suggestion was to uh, perhaps take legal action. Obviously, that was in the heat of the moment. But uh, do you think uh, there are grounds uh, for that in your estimation? Well, the WSF will say will say no, but having been um, covered to three or four of the last um, Olympic bids that um, squash has um, been involved in, there, there have been there have been grounds at the time. Um, back in two thousand and nine, for example, well, I mean, the way that the IOC have worked it is that you know squash has lost out on a secret ballot vote with the IOC committee, hmm. um, a two thirds majority vote, and then rugby and golf were put in. Um, I was in Buenos Aires in 2013 when wrestling was controversially reinstated and they all came out of the, bounding out of the hall in Buenos Aires um, joyfully and then squash sort of limply walked back. And, you know, having, having assessed and seen all this um, up front, it's, um, and then looking back into, um, in, in, into the bids themselves, you, there, there, there certainly have been grounds um, at the time in 2005 to 2012 when squash tried again for the London Games 
and then four years later um, for Rio, um, there, there, there certainly were grounds. But at the time, there was only a, there was a memorandum where uh, sports could so legally apply within 30 days, and obviously that time <laughs> that time has passed, right. um, being over a decade later. But I think in terms of the overall picture about what the IOC um, imply about what sports can do to to, to be part of the games, um, squash has certainly done everything possible. They haven't um, spoken out about it because they don't want to um, muddy the waters of the IOC. Um, but in terms of just the, the basic rules about applying to be an Olympic sport, squash has done everything possible, but there seems to be underhand tactics at every corner um, uh, involving the IOC. And, it, and it's just been hard to assess as, as to what squash can do now um, mm-hmm. to get back into it. Yeah, well, they seem to be, uh, as uh, I think Nick Hope, uh, mentioned on his podcast uh, appearance, he uh, they're moving the goalposts, and uh, squash is having a difficult time. I guess uh, I mean when you juxtapose it to uh, the sports that are in there now, uh, as you mentioned in your article, uh, surfing, skateboarding, uh, rock climbing. I guess and now uh, of course break dancing, break dancing juxtaposed uh, with um, squash. Um, the you know it's kind of obvious what uh, what we're up against. I think. Yeah, absolutely. And the goal, as, he, as Nick said, there, um, the goalposts have, have moved. I mean, it's not up to the IOC now, it's up to the, the NOCs and well, more, more so the organising committees. Um, and, and it's put to a final vote, the ex- executive boards um, in the summer leading up to, to a Games. And so when the host nation is involved in it, obviously there's going to be bias in, into their sports. So baseball and softball for LA is certainly going to be um, right up there. Mm-hmm. Um, so for Tokyo, surfing and and all these sort of uh, uh sports in inverted commas have been put in and now for paris it looks like ioc have um sorry that paris have i know the ioc have gone for these sports and favored them and and left nothing for for the other sports and then that includes squash so yeah. three of those um sports that have been put in for paris obviously on tokyo there's been no the, the way squash perceived it was that it was going to be an assessment after Tokyo to see how these new sports were, um, were going to fare and then look forward towards Paris. That, that was what squash thought. Um, speaking to the WSF um, chief exec um, days before um, the Paris press conference. So yeah, yet again, um, squash is, it's one of life's mysteries why squash is an Olympic sport and that's going to continue. Yeah, exactly. Now, now Nick also mentioned, uh, you know, he had been to Buenos Aires, at, uh, I think, for the uh, youth games, and he mentioned that squash was, uh, you know, it was great. You know, we were all happy and felt that being there would, might bode well for the Olympic bid, but he felt otherwise, having been there himself, you know, stating that squash was sort of uh, off in this uh, no man's land, basically. What meanwhile, uh, breakdancing was in the middle of the city in a urban uh, cent, urban what do they call it, urban park, I guess. Um, Given that, was, do, you, do you think squash would have, you know, our, our WSF and the PSA, would they have known about this? And then uh, wondering why they may not have been able to broker a better venue for, uh, for squash at those games. I, I don't think so, to be honest, Jerry. You, you look at it, you've got a, you've got a um, WSF president who is actually French and um, sits on the NOC board, not on the organizing committee board. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, from the outside world, I mean, obviously Nick was there in Buenos Aires, but from the outside, um, looking at the pictures, it looked like squash had um, just as much of, uh, of a profile than um, breaking or break dancing, they call it. Um, 
So really, it's, yeah, I think squash was just, they've just been left in the dark as to what actually a bid entails these days. And um, yeah, over those months since um, the Buenos Aires Youth Games, it's, um, it's, it's very evident that, um, uh, that squash hasn't been able to know what's, what's been going on. And, um, mm. and uh, these, these sports are now being put up to the, put up to the forefront. Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, I use the analogy that, uh, you know, you go for a job interview, uh, you've been asked to go for a job interview, but basically they've already chosen the person that they, they want for the job. They've just, uh, they're filling the quota uh, yeah. of people that it's, it's kind of the, the same thing, I would imagine, in this case. Yeah, exactly. There's just, there's just, there's just no rules. Yeah. Now, now in terms of squash, um, with the goalposts moving, we know, obviously, we know this is happening. Uh, what do you think squash uh, has done well to keep up with the changes? And, and maybe, uh, obviously, we need to do more. Uh, what, what, in your estimation, do you think squash would need to do to overcome this obvious um, gap between uh, our sport and the sports that are being uh, offered bids in the games? They, they can't do they can't do much else, Jerry. I mean, the last four years, PSA have done brilliantly yeah. profiling it. I mean, you know, I'm sure you've discussed everything, all these things on, on previous podcasts and um, mm-hmm. uh, ev- everything's there in place. You've got the front wall now, you've got the inter- interactivity, um, you've got that youth engagement. You see those videos now on social media with young kids um, hitting balls or throwing balls against the wall um, with that touchscreen, um, which Marcus Kern in, in Munich has done brilliantly to, to highlight. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got the high definition on TV, seeing a live game. Now you come out breathless after a five game and watching a five game epic. Um, you know, you're losing calories just watching that. <laughs> it, 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 there's nothing more you can do. You've got these venues. Now you've got, um, this week, uh, the women's worlds back in, back in the, in front of the pyramids. You, you, you look at a calendar and the sexy locations, um, now, and the whole package is, is, uh, quite brilliant. Plus the million pound dollar process. Yeah across the prize money and everything that goes forward. So, you know, it's a case of keep pushing. I think the answer to your question, you know, it's the legal route and, you know, really hammering down on the IC doors in Lausanne, the way to go. And I think it is. Yeah. Well, keep pushing the envelope. Exactly. Now, now, um, you know, look, looking for ways to make it a, a little more sexier and more appealing uh, to the younger people. Now, I think one, you know, the world championships, as we, we talked the about before we started, uh, just finished up, and it was a great event. Uh, although uh, a lot of the you know comments on uh, on Twitter and and on Facebook that you know may not be uh, spoken about in the media is the fact that you know uh, attendance at the event was was not very was not very good. And uh, uh, I mean, for for a World Open, uh, I think. You know, you have to choose a a venue where you're going to attract a lot of people. Obviously, Grand uh, Union Station is a great venue potentially, but it just didn't attract uh, the numbers uh, from basically from start to finish. Yeah, that's right. That was noticeable in the um, the early rounds of the side walls and uh, side wall seating, and it's, yeah, it was a bit mystifying as to why that was the case when they could get a load of schools in, kids in, and um, what they do with, with other sports. Um, Obviously, the later rounds were, were 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 pretty full, but yeah, you've got a setting like that, and you um, wonder why there were uh, no seats there. It's a bit, well, I mean, Chicago now. I think it's going to be announced that um, they've got the next three uh, editions. So um, the billionaire backer is um, obviously committed okay. to it. Um, mm-hmm. So you think there'll be uh, 
um, some scope to try and rectify that and uh, over the course, especially with LA hosting the uh, Olympics in 2028, um, you want to get as much profile as possible on it. Well, it just uh, seems, yeah. no, it seems like squash in that part of America is is really growing and really vibrant. The the U.S. Uh, the, the the university squash scene, the the private club scene, the a lot of great tournaments, uh, PSA events in that area. So I was a bit surprised at sort of the the turnout for the the earlier rounds, as you said. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And the the other thing was that it was um, actually absolutely no national press attendance. Um, not one of the Chicago or Boston papers were there to cover the event, which is a bit surprising. Mm-hmm. There was no international media. Um, I think Squash Squash Blair, or Squash Blair magazine editor was there. Um, three photographers and um, and and PSA staff. Um, now that's um, that's that's pretty tragic, really. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, uh, just speaking about uh, media in squash, I wanted to ask you uh, this about uh, sort of uh, objectivity in, in journalism and uh, in, in the squash uh, community, I guess. Uh, you've been covering the game for, for a long, long time. Uh, and as a journalist, uh, I mean, as you know, we, we, talk, we just talk about it. There's not there's hardly any uh, mainstream coverage of squash, if, if at all. Um, What's your feeling in terms of the objectivity of the reporting of, of squash in, in, the, in the squash community uh, media sites that we have? Because my, my feeling is that it's just, uh, I mean, it's always, uh, always a positive story. Meanwhile, you, you look at mainstream sports and every day there's something very critical about someone or aspect, some aspect of the game. And obviously that's going to be uh, positive for the game in order to, to develop it. Uh, do you see that uh, that way in terms of squash, uh, right? Yeah, Jerry, it's, only, it's very one way. There's obviously squash site, which is sort of just reporting a lot of tournaments and um, not being uh, critical at all. Um, and, and elsewhere, there is, there is nothing. Um, you know, there, there aren't sort of columnists going to tournaments and writing about the state of play and um, uh, an insight to that, um, which what you need, you need to build these players up. You need a bit of rivalry. Um, for example, the last over the last decades or more, uh, I've done squash for the Telegraph. Two stories have, have stood out um, in terms of, well, if it's not into print, it's online. And in terms of web traffic, was the James Wilstrop, um, Nick Matthews sort of tete-a-tetes at the yeah. British Open in '09, yeah. and then um, I think a couple of years ago, the uh, Gaultier Mohammed Shabagi um, TOC final when. Um, Gregory was hobbling around on one leg like a pirate, um, and uh, that was that. That was very controversial, and that got twenty-five thousand hits on on the Telegraph online platform, which obviously yeah. it's a UK UK-based uh, website, but it, it has a global audience. Those kind of things are absolutely key to growing the game. You, you, you get to know about these characters, what they're like, and that's what that's what the sport needs, and, and it's certainly what's not happening at the moment. Yeah, all the, I mean, the Egyptian squash, as we know, is just uh, another level of squash that we haven't seen until, uh, until now. But at the same time, with all of these guys being uh, such good friends and so, so well-behaved, uh, for the most part, on court, uh, the rivalry uh, aspect doesn't have that same uh, feel to it. No, it doesn't, because there's so, <laughs> so many of these great Egyptians that are now infiltrating the top 20 across men and women. 
Um, they're all married. They're all married couples having dinner together at the end of the night. <laughs> they are. They are. And you wouldn't have thought that when um, the, the, the thing I really want to go and cover is the um, Egyptian national championships. When you get the parents and the young kids who are being berated and there's shouting going on at uh, these vibrant courts um, throughout the week, and that you get a real sense about what the what the sport's about. And then um, 10, 15 years later, they're all married. So um, it's uh, yeah. I mean, you know. It's, to someone who's just getting into the game, and you know, you see someone like Tarek Moman who's had a sort of up and down career and now on, on the up again. You want to know a little bit more about these guys. Um, people know, obviously, Mohammed El Shabagi and Marwan, his brother, um, because they live in Bristol in the UK and um, they've got a really good story coming ever, um, age 15 and um, being coached down in Millfield. Those stories people sort of start to know about, but for the majority of people who don't know the sport, that they still don't know about these characters. I mean, Mohammed has got such a great backstory uh, that needs to be taken to a wider audience. Yeah. Um, and until more media start covering it and, and the papers doing it, which they're not going to do, unfortunately, unless governing bodies start to sort of um, speak to these sports editors, it's going to be really hard to um, to grow the game on, on that side, which is important for um, getting sponsorship. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now we you did mention the the Nick Matthew uh, James Wilstrip rivalry, and then before that, obviously there was the uh, the Power Nickel rivalry and the the Con Con rivalry, and the uh, list goes on uh, dating back. But uh, th- those were really really good years uh, for squash, and especially well for the squash community because the the rivalries uh, they were amazing. Yeah. I sort of got into sport and um, uh, as Nickel and Power were um, just ending it, but, you know, looking at um, speaking to a lot to, um, to Peter and um, about it, it, and, and, and obviously then um, Nick and James started getting on board, totally contrasting characters um, yeah. on it and, you know, didn't really speak. And then uh, yet they have great careers and then they suddenly over time it's, it's I spoke to Nick uh, last year about it um, as you know he hopes one day that um, Nick and James can sit down and just talk about what what brilliant stuff they did for the sport well apparently uh, they've they, got this uh, this big cross-country tour uh, match right. play thing planned or something but that's contingent upon uh, James uh, retiring which uh, I don't know. He he. When I watched him in the British Nationals, he looked like he was about twenty years old, moving <laughs> yeah, around absolutely. the court. Did you see that? Yeah. Did you? Oh, I, I did actually. Um, I, I did, and there are there are tournaments when he when he can play like that, and obviously that I was in the Gold Coast when um, he produced exactly the same run. Um, yeah, you're right. Well, that Barrington Hunt thing started. Oh, sorry, the Wilstrop uh, Matthew um, uh, exhibition touted exhibition started back in um, when Barrington and Hunt would go, were still uh, just towards the end of their careers. They went on a massive roadshow um, right. up north and down to Cornwall. And um, yeah, I really hope that this can, this this um, this uh, concept can can be pulled off um, and, and get the crowds. And uh, so Bar- know, Barrington and Hunt did something similar. Did you say they did? Yeah, yeah. they did. They went on a big big roadshow, fifteen tour thing. And um, yeah, I've seen the post. I've got a book um, with. With with a picture on it, and um, Barrington just with a towel over his head, and um, you know this is only exhibition stuff, but they were going hammer and tongs at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, that would have been. Brilliant. I mean, the two of them were were very, uh, you know, they, they were huge competitors. Yeah, they left nothing on the court. Um, yeah. You know, they barely back in those days they barely really saw each other or met each other in tournament play. 
um, because um, Jeff wasn't based over in, in England. But um, so, so that rivalry was built up over time. The press obviously was, <laughs> every paper was covering it and they built this thing up um, because they didn't really meet. It was like boxers um, meeting and, um, you know, after, after sort of nine months, they weren't well, playing was, each other week That was week. the feeling I got too. Uh, I mean, I, I, I was... Th- with the Jonathan Power, Peter Nickel rivalry. I mean, that was something I know Jonathan a little bit from Canada and I've played him a bit before. Mm. So we're, I'm close to him and uh, you know, being Canadian, following him in his career was great. I, I just remember when he was just, I think it was the Hong Kong open 97 or 98 and the Joan, I think it was Jonah Barrington who interviewed him before his final against Peter Nickel. It was almost like a UFC kind of attitude that he had. Like he's, he just said, I'm going to go out there and uh, finish this guy it's going to be all shots like that right <laughs> and uh, uh, you don't hear anything like that today no well it's sort of uh, it's such a packed calendar now and uh, with the egyptians sort of almost um sparring each other in alexandria or cairo yeah. and all friends off the court obviously there's um you know there's that rivalry on the court but um it's so different now because um they do see each other the whole time and there isn't that sort of um you know, like Nick Fowler in golf, the, the way these sort of Britons work are that, um, especially from a sort of British point of view, is that um, they, uh, they for some Britons like Nick Faldo, he just was game face on, didn't want to speak to anyone who was their yeah. rival. Um, and that's why he got so good. And with that, for, the, for the British public, they did, sometimes don't see that. Um, you know, Lewis Hamilton, for example. Nick was um, probably the same. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Nick Matthew was probably the same during his career. He had that sort of game face on and left, um, left nothing there. And um, yeah, yeah I remember uh, he played power uh, uh, once and the, the two of them were basically face to face. It looked like they were going to drop the rackets. Uh, I think Jonathan accused him of wiping the ball on his shirt before he served. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> Do you remember Fantastic. that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nick's not one of the back down, is he? Yeah. No, exactly. Well, he would have he would have loved that, and he would have taken that and then stored it in his armory for later on in his career when he got to world number one. So those kind of things. Um, that's what stood him apart, really. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna. Uh, I'd just like to ask you about James a little bit. You've spent a bit of time with with, uh, with James over the years. Obviously, you co-authored his book, uh, Shot and the Ghost, uh, which is, I, I really enjoyed that book. That must have been quite an experience of having to to put that uh, together with him. We you alluded to it earlier. Um, and I mentioned it earlier, his British Nationals uh, title run was amazing. I watched uh, pretty much all the matches from the quarters onwards. And like I said, it was shot out of a can and it looked like uh, like he was 20, 22 years old, moving around the court like he was you know, like, uh, playing really well. So what's your take on, on James's game at this point? Because obviously, you know, retire, there are murmurings of him retiring. Um, do you see him playing uh, for a few more years or is this, uh, are you privy to, uh, you know, what he might be planning going forward? I do actually. I thought the, I thought the Commonwealth games would um, kind of maybe seal the end, but since Nick's retired, there was that, is that window now where he's out of those shackles and um, can play with more freedom knowing that there's, there's not a Nick Matthew in the, in the, in the side of a draw. Um, He's playing absolutely breathtakingly well in the last year. Obviously, yeah. there's some tournaments where you know he, he does come up against a better opponent, but well, when it's he tough to run compete to... against uh, Ali Farag uh, and those. I mean, those yeah. guys. That that's the best in the world, right there. And he he's yeah. competing with them. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think it's just learning since having a kid and off court stuff with some acting. Um, that it's sort of he's he just got that very stable um, motivation now, and he and he's and he's very happy with on and off court. Mm. Um, he's just supremely experienced still. And um, when it all comes together, as I've, as we mentioned uh, already, on the Gold Coast and um, in Nottingham with the British Nationals, um, you know, there's no one better. Um, you know, back hand, <laughs> that yeah. backhand drop into the left corner. Well, it's just uh, uh, still the triple, the, the, the triple fake, or what, what, what? I think that's what yeah. they call. It. Yeah, I mean, he. Yeah. He's, well, those uh, are the kind of things. Yeah. Well, that's another one that went through the roof when that when he did that a few years ago. Yeah. Um, in terms of web traffic and seeing that video is still a pleasure yeah there are only a few guys on on the tour that you know you know when when they play they're going to you know produce something like that there's uh i would say kareem abdul gawad he he's got the, a shot makers uh, game that we all like to watch uh, james obviously every time he plays uh maybe gregory galche uh guys like that i mean they're uh, always uh, a joy to watch play yeah, they are. Uh, and Ali Farag for just his just sort of flexibility on court, yeah. like an octopus, he can get everywhere. Maybe you know he his ability have to get balls fame. out of you know get balls that are seemingly uh, you know winners. He gets them back. I don't know how. <laughs> yeah, absolutely incredible. Do I mean, you play, do you play much squash, uh, Rod? Uh, do yourself? I, I, yeah, I try to. I try to. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I was brought up on the game, so that's why I probably cover it with, with that sort of love of the of the sport. Um, but um, you know, I've been put on glass courts. Um, yeah, you've probably had plenty glass. of opportunity to to play at the best uh, best venues around, haven't you? Oh, you try and always try and wiggle in, then you know, around um, around practice during during tournaments. Um, I, was, I was actually hooked up to a um, to the uh, ice squashes sort of. Um, equipment heart rates and 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 ball tracking okay I've tell tell the, us uh, where, where where did your heart rate go <laughs> well it was astronomical actually i just come back from the um commonwealth game so i was very unhealthy and um <laughs> yeah. it was uh yeah it, it was on the spectrum of um being a problematic um thing for someone who was looking at the stats um but <laughs> yeah I, I i went up against <laughs> Uh, Nathan from the PSA media department and we, we played a game and um, uh, played three games simulated sort of half an hour of, of play uh, the average court um, we were trying to sort of basically uh, do a piece from the average cl club player and, and what those sort of statistics would be in, in relation to the to the average pro and um, okay so they were actually they were very very re revealing um, okay <laughs> put, it this, put it this way my heart rate didn't drop during the um, during the sort of uh, 90 seconds sort of rest right. when it really should go down. Um, my heart rose up with Mohamed El Shabagi, whereas his heart rate would drop significantly right. and and rest a little bit during that downtime. Mine didn't recover. Okay. Well, that just shows you what <laughs> what a great game squash is. I mean, you're, if you're out there playing for 30 minutes with that heart rate, although it's a bit scary, yeah. I mean, you're, you're, uh, you're out there burning calories, man. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, you come off court and you're kind of oh head of the towel like you know Jahangir um, one of Jahangir's beaten opponents um, <laughs> and it really did um, seeing the stats afterwards and doing the piece it really did um, uh, reveal I knew it anyway just what supreme gifted athletes these, these, these guys are 
on the well, technology now. To, uh, maybe I can give that a go when the Super Series comes back to uh, Dubai. I, I've had a, a few of the guys on the podcast, so I might have a, a bit of bit of a connection there. I could try the same thing. We can compare notes uh, on our yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Um, now you've, uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you, you've uh, written and co-authored several books, uh, several on squash as well. Um, you've got the Jahangir Khan 555, uh, uh, 555 book on his uh, amazing win streak, uh, Trading Secrets, which is uh, I've read parts of and Shot in the Ghost I have on uh, Kindle. I really enjoyed that. It really brought us inside uh, James Willstrip's uh, Life as a Player, uh, amongst other books. Um, of those uh, three, which uh, are you most proud of, uh, Rod, and why? Um, or is there one I'm missing there? <laughs> no, there's, there's, there's three on squash there, <coughs> which, um, um, which, which, which you're right. I think probably James's book, to be honest. Um, it was so raw. Mm. Um, they're, all, they're all pretty different. Um, but um, the book with James was probably that because it's um it was independently written um um it was the first self-published book to be nominated for the william hill sports book award i, I wow. couldn't we couldn't believe it when it was um nominated uh, alongside some other big titles there that year in 2012 um and i really didn't know how the project would come together i just said to jay i, I knew that he had a great story it was a little bit different where well, he's very different from other squash players on tour his just mm -hmm. whole mindset and demeanor and the way he goes about everyday life um and it really was going to be a case of me uh, going up to see him perhaps and just sort of ghosting it but in the end he just wrote these big chapters every other month and in the end i had 180,000 words uh -huh. um which i had to cut down to 70,000 words um so really that was all like that was my process he wrote it which was um probably even better for the for the way it came out um well was that, i mean i i read it and uh, it was definitely really refreshing to see sort of how a player truly feels and what they really go through and the troubles yeah. that they have and the, the those real kind of like you said raw experiences uh, uh that they have and and he really uh he didn't leave uh you know, he didn't pull any punches. <laughs> no, he didn't. And I probably wouldn't have got that, all that stuff if I, if I had have um, interviewed him over a course, uh, a period of a period of time. So it was just all coming him and it all, once he started into that process, it, it all sort of started to flow. Um, and, it, and it gave a really good snapshot over a year, but obviously he, he talked about um, growing up and um, so sort of his OCD tendencies and flying on planes with people coughing and, all these things. Um, <laughs> Joe, Joey tells a good good story about him not uh, liking the sun. Uh, and caught, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you can't see him stretching back on a on a Dubai um, sun lounger um, during a tournament trying to get a tan. That's not, no, that's not really a star from the Yorkshire. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that's probably the bet the, the book that I'm um, most most pleased with, and um, others you try and follow. And um, yeah, Trading Secrets was was a good one to do and. Yeah, I like the uh, I like the, the the concept behind that. The just sort of twelve chapters on different um, different aspect, different different um, uh, generations of the game and different people involved. I think that's sort of the it in a nutshell, isn't it? Yeah, I think yeah, I think so. It was um, I, I knew that every era had different ways of of um, sort of getting fit, and um, Australians had a, had a 
especially with, with that, that was a fascinating insight um, in, into that aspect. But yeah, it really is fascinating to, to, to delve into that and um, yeah, the, the rivalry at the time, um, how they got fit, um, how their mindset was to, to become champions. And obviously that, that then morphed into um, spinning out the Jahangir story. Mm. Uh, with my co-author, co-author Alan, Alan Thatcher, that, that was uh, another fascinating insight. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Mainly on the back that it, it wasn't 555 wins, um, even though the book is is titled that. Right. Yeah. There, there was. Uh, so actually, it's 555. But he, uh, what is that? That's not 555 in a row, is it? Um, yes, it is. Yeah. Suppose, okay. Supposedly. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Over. over a, Oh. over a 10 year period um well sorry five year period from 81 i think to 86 when ross norman beat him right but I mean, um he had an incredible yeah, streak because he he would he'd cross over seamlessly from hard from softball yeah. go over to hardball and then then win over there against guys who only played uh, hardball yeah absolutely yeah no he he had a um even yeah he had a great success on, on the hardball courts as well so to do that and, you know, he'd win tournaments and the next day he'd be on a plane um, from a um, sponsor would fly him over to play in a hardball tournament in um, North America and he would um, clean up there as well. But to win 555 games, uh, matches in a row over a five-year period, well, doesn't, um, the mouse tells you that you would have to do uh, play 100 matches in a, over 100 matches in a year, uh, which is just not possible. Um, especially back then because there are there are fewer tournaments so yes yeah, so it was something we had to research and get right and um obviously Jahangir yeah, wasn't best pleased with um the fact that we sort of it, it only lasted a couple of pages but we had to sort of um tell the reader that it, it for that to happen he would have had to have gone um uh, through 20 tournaments um winning let's say five matches each so that's 100 um matches in a year i, I just and, and the records, there's no records back then. So um, right. I'd, could, that, could very, that have included uh, like league matches or sort of, I guess it wouldn't include uh, exhibition wins or anything, would it? Yeah, I think, um, no, it, it, yeah, I, I, it's hard to really quantify now. But um, um, yeah, I think if you put league and um, exhibitions in as well, exhibitions doesn't really count, to be honest. Um, so that would be still he'll be a little bit short on that um but yeah i think it's probably 250 300 maybe if that right um, right um but you know we can't well, we'll have to read the book <laughs> good everyone get out there and read the book and we can uh we can uh judge for ourselves i guess yeah absolutely yeah you can yeah i mean it's the five five figure is is sort of in it's almost a trademark in in Jahangir's mind and yeah it was um well there's no there's no question uh, to me anyways i mean that's when i started playing and you know the green uh, uh the unsquashable racket the iconic racket that he played with yeah. back then yeah. um i mean to me he's still the greatest of all time so just the I way he so. played i think so just yeah. everything that um he went through in his early days um with his brother yeah. um well, he had he had a physical. He wasn't the uh, physically uh, the the healthiest guy when he was young, was he? He had asthma or it's some yeah. sort of uh, ailment, uh, didn't he? Yeah, I think he did have a, some kind of respiratory mm. problem. I, I can't tell T but one thing that sticks out was when he did a. Um, he was hooked up to a sort of a, a test in from a 
Canadian doctor, I think, in Toronto. Um, and he was put on um, uh, a uh, running machine, and then the doctor did some tests, and um, tests basically equated to him being equal to a long-distance ultramarathon runner, um, yeah. which was quite incredible. Well, that footage of him, you, you see it all the time, the footage of him training in the, the mountains in, in Pakistan. Uh, yeah. there. I mean, the, the stuff. That looks like a jet plane, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's uh, the stuff of legend. Uh, and he, uh, you know, he, he was a step above everybody until, until his uh, cousin came along, I think. And then that, that rivalry uh, started. So. Exactly. And every generation spawns those, and it's what... Um, um, it's what the sport continues to, to, to crave for and need yeah. um, to keep the sport exciting. Well, something's bound to happen. I mean, uh, these guys are competitive, uh, you know, Mohammed, uh, ultra competitive, obviously to get where he is, Ali, super nice guy, but he's going to be competitive and, and uh, some, you, you'll think some sort of rivalry uh, or one of these other younger fellows uh, coming up now, there, there's going to be something in it somewhere along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And you can't, you can't forget the women's game as well. You oh, got, yeah, for sure. Seeing, well, there's more, there's, more, there's more seemingly more rivalry there because you got some great sort of aggressive, uh, you know, ni- nice, nice ladies, but some aggressive uh, personalities on, on the women's side that make it intriguing. It, sure. it, it does. It does. It, I mean, it, obviously, it's a, um, a different game, but it brings its own element of excitement. Which, um, and you've got those top girls there all have different attributes. Um, you know, Raneem, probably the greatest player on tour oh, in terms yeah. of ability. Um, She's the Shabana ladies uh, tour. I would say she, I'd love watching her play. Yeah, fantastic player to watch. Um, she has yeah. supreme racket skills. Yeah. Um, and then you've got players, you know, like Marina Stefanoni, young uh, American girl, um, won the British Junior Open uh, for the first time at under 17 level, I think, um, who looks a great talent with another good backstory um, yeah. poker face and, uh, and giving nothing away. And so, yeah, these, um, yeah, I think it's looking good for the women's game as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, Sarah Jane Perry brings a different game uh, as well. Uh, she's, yeah. she, she's a very entertaining girl to, to, to watch and add to the mix uh, as our, uh, yeah. yes. Love her grit. I'm um, especially in the, in the Commonwealth final way when she got to, um, to the final. Um, against the Kiwi, um, yeah, she's got some real grit to her, um, and, and a great game as well. Very, very good, uh, good hands there, uh, with great racks. Yeah, 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 great hands, all powerful, and um, and uh, she's done some, uh, doing some great things out of the Robo and Academy in um, yep. in the Midlands, and really yep. growing her game. And Absolutely, hopefully she gets back to the top level after injury. Now, uh, now, Rob, before you take off, I uh, really appreciate you for coming on. Uh, just wondering, is, is there anything, uh, anything you have going, anything, um, any, any other books coming up, or uh, what, what's up next for you in terms of uh, your squash uh, uh, schedule? Well, the squash schedule, I think um, British Open is, um, is, is, is looming. Um, Canary Wharf? Squash is, yeah, Canary Wharf, I think um, I, I'll be going down there. Um, to see what um, to assess the best of three format um, and apart from that yeah, the British Open and then um, just basically trying to get to <laughs> coverage I think especially after the Olympic um, the, the, the sour 
yeah. um, couple of weeks over the Olympic bid is basically just try and hammer down um, um, coverage and try and get sponsors on board, working with the PSA to see if there is any avenue there with um, getting more coverage, um, especially in the tele Telegraph. I have not given up that ghost. Mm -hmm. um, I think it, in, that needs to happen is for governing bodies to work together um, trying to find a sponsor. Um, and I think that's the way to go. Is, is um, Unfortunately, sports editors only see what's on TV, um, football, cricket, rugby, golf. Those are the sports that seem to dominate and everything else is left by the wayside. Right. Well, I want, uh, just want to wish you uh, all the best. You do a great job with, with uh, what you do, Rob. Rod, and um, uh, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, any uh, Anything in the hopper in terms of uh, books? I know you have... Uh, uh, the most recent one, the 2018 on uh, field hockey, wasn't it? The Soul, um, Soul Glow, yes. Soul Glow, yeah, yeah. I lived in Seoul for a while, so what a city that is. Yeah, don't no, it? Um, I, I'm, I'm sure it is. Yeah, I, I haven't been up there. I've got the swimming world championships in uh, Gwangju in South Korea. Oh, Gwangju, okay, yeah. yeah, you'll like it there. <laughs> so that that should be good. Um, I'm just launching a hockey paper um, in the UK field hockey paper okay um at the end of the month um to try and grow the game there again on the back of no uh, national media coverage and, hence um, the 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 moniker the minor sport tub thumper <laughs> that's what that colleague termed me as i think um a few years ago yeah no I, well, I, I you're I fighting the good fight mate i know i think it's because i just uh, you know i've covered football and cricket i've been there and um, the players have sort of um, now got managers and um it's very hard to sort of get access but with these sports you're sort of you're there you're in it and you can you know you get the best of them when they come off court no one else is covering it mm -hmm. um you get closer up to players and officials and really get a grip on the sport yeah it's, a, it's um, amazing i i interviewed uh i had was lucky enough to have renim uh elwilili on my podcast and for mm. a person you know like that number one in the world in her sport she said she'd never been on a podcast before and that's just shocking <laughs> you know well, there you go. Yeah, I mean, she's been on stage for. Uh, I've seen. If you look on YouTube, um, she's done a TEDx talk, um, yeah. TEDx TEDx Caro, which is absolutely fascinating. So she's a good speaker, and uh, yeah, she yeah. is. Uh, well, Rod, thank you so much again for uh, for doing this, and uh, let's keep in touch, and love to do it again soon at some point. Great, Jerry. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks. Bye bye. Well, thank you, Rod, for that. Really enjoyed uh, talking squash with you, particularly about the, the Olympic bid. Uh, he, he had lots of great uh, stuff to say about that. And also, uh, James Willstrup, uh, he has a, a connection with James, and we talked quite a bit about James's uh, you know, future going forward, uh, particularly after such a great uh, showing at the British Nationals, winning that and looking very good in doing so. So. Uh, hope to have Rod on again in the not too distant future. Knows his squash, so that would be great. Um, now, just uh, like to congratulate a couple of uh, players here. Uh, the Canadian Open, uh, Diego Elias just uh, won that one over Paul Cole in the final, so a uh, great win for him. And uh, there's a great picture actually of uh, Diego after the win uh, with uh, Jonathan Power pictured with him. Uh, he, Diego was wearing a, some sort of robe there and had the trophy uh, in hand. And uh, JP uh, had a massively uh, full head of hair. I don't think I've ever seen him with, with so much hair. Um, uh, so uh, uh, anyways, congratulations to, uh, to Diego. Great picture there, great result. 
and uh, so that bodes well for, for Diego uh, going forward after maybe not such a, a great showing in the last few tournaments. A good result there for him. And in, uh, in Bermuda uh, right now, we've got uh, Jamie Haycox and Nick Sackfee going to get through, uh, getting through to the final. Uh, the three and four seeds, I believe, there. So uh, good luck to them. Uh, Nick's been on the podcast before, and we've been talking uh, about him coming back on. And, uh, well, there's good reason now for him uh, for that, obviously, if, uh, particularly if he were to win this event. We'd love to have him on to talk about uh, a good round of results that he's had uh, recently. So good luck uh, to both those guys uh, in the final at the Bermuda Open. Now, uh, just over the next couple of weeks, I've got some really good uh, episodes lined up. I know you're going to enjoy them. One in particular, uh, we're going to have on uh, the mental coach to uh, Miguel Rodriguez, Max Withers. Uh, I've known Max for many, many years, um, and he's uh, an interesting character. If you guys, uh, you guys might know, uh, for anyone who knows Max, uh, he knows his squash. Uh, he's a mental uh, coach uh, these days. That seems to be uh, what he's doing. He's uh, outside the box in a lot of ways. Uh, he's got. He's quite entrepreneurial. Uh, I'm sure he'll want to uh, talk about what he's doing there. But I think we're going to be focusing uh, quite a bit on the mental game. And and I know he put a lot of work in with uh, with Miguel uh, leading up to uh, the British Open. And he and a uh, very very. Uh, hard work with Miguel and very proud of what he was able to do there at the British Open last year and since then I think they you know they've been working together for quite a while I don't know how long so that'll be uh, something we talk about um, on the podcast when he comes on and uh, get into a little bit more detail about uh, the mental game and and what he does with his players and how he coaches them and and addresses uh, mental training uh, with his players so That'll be Max Withers uh, later this week. We've also got a few uh, few more players coming on. Still need to firm things up on that end, but uh, looking forward to the next few weeks on the podcast. Uh, appreciate all of you for listening. Thanks so much, and have a great day. Goodbye now.